slower reading period, Babel took quite a bit to get through. Several books in progress with more to come in the way of audio, books, net galley, and of course, the pile. I'm currently reading uh, Richard Yates' Revolutionary Road and just finished an object lesson about pregnancy tests that will be coming out in March. Any favorites for you? Something you're excited to read for release later this year? Hello, and welcome to Book Club of One. I am Jacob, a librarian, and through the course of a year I read a lot of books. Join me as I detail and share my impressions of the books that have entertained or educated me the most. Babel, or the Necessity of Violence and Arcane History of the Oxford Translator's Revolution, by R.F. Kuang a Chinese-American fantasy writer. She has a Master's of Philosophy in Chinese Studies from Cambridge and a Master's of Science in Contemporary Chinese Studies from Oxford. She is currently pursuing a PhD in East Asian Language and Literature at Yale. Her first novel, The Poppy War, was released in 2018, and she has published four novels to date, with a fifth due out in May 2023. She has won the International Association for the Fantastic and the Arts Crawford Fantasy Award 2019 for a first fantasy book published in the preceding 18 months. The Baltimore Science Fiction Society's Compton Crook Award for the Best First Novel in English 2019 and the Astounding Award for Best New Writer, named after the Astounding Science Fiction Periodical, to the Best New Writer whose first professional work of science fiction or fantasy was published in the last two years. Her winning was in 2020. Her work has also been nominated or a finalist for Goodreads Choice Awards, Locus, Nebula, and World Fantasy Awards, and many others. I've been following this particular title since it was first announced or shared in an upcoming book release list. Been waiting for the audiobook copy for a while. Babel is an alternate history that grapples with the student revolution's colonial resistance and the use of language and translation as the dominating tool of the British Empire. A Cantonese orphan is adopted by a British professor who works at Babel, the world's center for translation and magic located in Oxford. The orphan, named in English by his own choice, Robin Swift, is trained in Latin, Greek, and other languages so he can enroll in the Royal Institute of Translation known as Babel. Here, alongside a small cohort, they struggle with their dual roles as both privileged scholars and foreign outsiders. This adapted from the Goodreads listing for the book. So it's a coming-of-age novel, but one that, through interludes, provides the coming-of-age of the four Babel classmates. In this world, silver can be magically powered by use of language. Words in different languages that have related but not identical meanings can be engraved in the silver, and what is lost in the translation process can cause different magical effects, such as hide the holder of the silver, increase accuracy, allow for greater hauling loads, or many other examples. A key, however, is that the language used for these translations needs a certain speaking population or their efficacy wanes. The keepers of these, as they are described in the book's match pairs, are those at Oxford University's Babel. It is how the school makes its money by maintaining them as they wear out through use. While this is an alternative world, it is still largely in keeping with ours. The central conflict is Britain as an imperial power. 
The campaign our characters are involved in is the British seeking control of China through the importation of opium to extract Chinese wealth. War has not quite been declared, but tensions are raised to the point that it seems very likely. And while colonialism is a clear theme, it is not all just the oppression of the controlling power. Rob and its classmates are in the unfortunate middle ground. They are being trained to be agents of the empire in their cultures of origin. How much do they assimilate? Do they make peace with the situation of their lives, or do they find ways to fight back? The role of academia in perpetuating culture is clear in this world. Those who control silver and the languages to understand its uses can run the world. That knowledge is restricted, and those with it are both privileged and restricted. It is an emphatic tale. We see the majority of events through Robin's eyes, and there are some scenes of shocking savagery hidden behind the placid ideals of civilization. How does an individual fight a system? What is the mental cost of trying to reconcile the cost of your privilege? How do you enjoy something you love knowing the harm it does to others? Question your ethics. The Daughter of Dr. Moreau Silvia Moreno-Garcia is a Mexican-born, Canadian-by-choice novelist, short story writer, editor, and publisher. She completed a master's degree in science and technology studies from the University of British Columbia. She began by writing for various fiction magazines, beginning with the June 2006 publication of the story Mirror Life in Deep Magic. Her first novel, Signal to Noise, was published in 2015. As of February 2023, she has published eight novels, with the ninth due out later this week year. Her work has been nominated for Locust, Nebula, Bram Stoker, World Fantasy, and Shirley Jackson Awards. Mexican Gothic won the British Fantasy Award for Horror and the Locust Award for Best Horror Novel. So I had the author recommended to me several times and had listened to and really liked the book Certain Dark Things, November of last year. The Daughter of Dr. Moreau is a reimagining of the island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells, set in 19th century Mexico. Carlotta, the doctor's daughter of the title, has been raised in a secluded, luxuriant estate and has reached an age to consider marriage. Montgomery Lawton sought an escape from a failed marriage through drink and the remote estate. The hybrids created by the doctor are intended to be slave labor hidden from the wider world. However, the wild wider world intrudes with the arrival of the son of Moreau's patron, beginning the unraveling of their complacency. Like Babel, this work explores colonialism, but works at a much smaller scale and is also exploring class, womanhood, as well as religion, science, power, and morality. The estate is located in the jungles of the Yucatan Peninsula. It is out of the way and sometimes portrayed as an island. From Moreno Garcia's notes, beginning in 1847, the Maya fought against the Mexican-European descended and mixed populations in a more than 50-year war known as the Caste War of Yucatan. This novel takes place in the 1870s, a good 30 years into that conflict. The reason outsiders arrive at the estate is seeking some of these Maya rebels. Carlotta is a child of privilege, but is seeking the freedom of adulthood to make her own choices and perhaps fall in love. The narrative alternates between Carlotta and Montgomery's viewpoints. It's a blend of science fiction, historical fiction, horror, and romance. Will Carlotta, Montgomery, and the hybrids have a safe and happy future, or will they be caught up in societal expectations? Dear Bill, Mabel's Love Letters to Her Rookies. 
by Florence Elizabeth Summers, who was an American author, and Natalie Stokes, an American illustrator. I was not really able to find any additional information about these two, as it appears this is their sole work. So I'd learned of this book in last episode's featured book, Love and Death in the Great War. It's a series of letters from Mabel writing to Bill while he served in the World War I U.S. Army. They are written as answering letters to the Dear Mabel first volume by Edward Streeter. So these are a nice rejoinder, giving the other perspective of this correspondence. Streeter's bill would go on to pen another two books of correspondence, but unfortunately this is the only one we ever get from Mabel's viewpoint. Mabel is writing from the home front, talking about all the friends and relations and what is going on. Pa's illness, the men who have not joined up, the beginnings of rationing. As with Dear Mabel, spellings are creative, and we see some of Bill's phrasings parroted back at him. Despite all the mirth, it's the story of a couple separated by circumstances, trying to maintain some sort of closeness, even if here it is rife with misunderstandings extended to comedic effect. Against the World, Anti-Globalism and Mass Politics Between the Wars Tara Zara is an American academic whose research focuses on the transnational history of modern Europe, migration, the family, nationalism, and humanitarianism. She has published four books and co-edited a fifth. She graduated from Swarthmore College with a BA in History and Economics and from the University of Michigan with an MA and PhD in History. She was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship in 2014 and was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2017. She is currently the Homer J. Livingston Professor of East European History in the College and the University of Chicago. She is currently under contract with Oxford University Press for The Great War and the Transformation of Habsburg Central Europe, co-authored with Peter Judson. I found this one through NetGalley and finished it a little late. It came out in January. Against the World is an examination of how nationalism came to ensnare world politics in the early 20th century. Globalism was weakened by the First World War, the Spanish flu, and restrictions on immigration and trade. And then there was the global reckoning with the economic crash and depression of the 1930s that gave rise to both fascism and the New Deal. So this is the first of our serious nonfiction offerings for this episode that continues into our next pick. While World War I was fought to make the world safe for democracy, at least as campaigned in America, that battle was truly waged to a greater degree in the interwar years, especially if this was the age of nationalism. Zara looks at many different nations in America and Europe and how they emerged from the First World War, either newly formed or rebuilding and recovering. The creation of the League of Nations running counter to movements within nations for greater self-sufficiency. There are some many specific case studies. The Italian establishment of 160 new cities through Italy in formerly swampy areas to increase agricultural output. The Irish and Indian campaigns to boycott British-produced goods. And the Back to the Land projects in both America and Germany. Zara also uses the experience of individuals to discuss the great implications, such as Henry Ford as one who both benefited from the reach of globalism while detesting it, He was a strong proponent for peace, at least early in the war. He unfortunately still has parallels in contemporary society of a wealthy white man funding or trying to push his viewpoints on others through his wealth. And then we also have figures such as Ruzika Schwimmer, 
a Jewish-born Hungarian pacifist, feminist, world federalist, and co-founder of the Campaign for World Government. She would unfortunately be stateless for the later part of her life, not granted American citizenship. And of course, the fig familiar figures such as Hitler, Mussolini, as well as Gandhi, and one of the most intriguing is of the Czech shoe company, Bataya. Wide in its coverage, it is a recommended read for anyone interested in 20th century history. The Battle of Blair Mountain, the story of America's largest labor uprising, by Robert Shogan, who is a white American journalist and author. He spent more than 25 years at the Washington Bureau of the Los Angeles Times, but also worked for the Detroit Free Press, Newsweek, and the Wall Street Journal. He taught at John Hopkins University and other institutions. He published 10 works of nonfiction and media criticism. I found this one when the library I was working at had withdrawn it from their collection. It's the retelling of the largest armed uprising on American soil since the Civil War. In 1921, some 10,000 West Virginian coal miners armed themselves and marched against the mine owners. For days, they fought before the intervention of a federal expeditionary force ended the conflict. So this looks at the U.S. between the wars, but much smaller focus than Zara's work. It's more apt to be described as a microhistory. Post-World War I, the United States was a very tense place, where there was widespread racial violence and the Red Hysteria. We previously talked about uh, the racial violence in episode 74 with the book Red Summer, 1990. There was also uh, unsolved bombings that were sent through the mail. The Battle of Blair Mountain explores the daily realities of life in a coal company town, how much control the company had to the point it could usually act with impunity. While much is focused on West Virginia, national figures get pulled into the conflict, including Mother Jones, Samuel Gompers, and Presidents Wilson and Harding, as well as descendants of the infamous Hatfield-McCoy conflict. It's yet another example of those with money exploiting their workers in the name of greed and profit which I'm sure none of us can think of modern parallels for. Reading soon or in progress. 18 Tiny Deaths, the untold story of Francis Glessner Lee and the invention of modern forensics by Bruce Goldfarb. Quote, the story of the Gilded Age Chicago heiress who revolutionized forensic death investigation. As the mother of forensic science, Francis Glessner Lee is the reason why homicide detectives are a thing. She was responsible for the popularity of forensic science in television shows and pop culture. Long overlooked in the history books, this extremely detailed and thoroughly researched biography will at long last tell the story of the life and contributions of this pioneering woman. End quote. That summary via Goodreads. This has been another episode of Book Club of One. Thank you for listening. I welcome constructive criticism and book recommendations, or even if you found a book through this episode and want to share the story, feel free to reach out through Instagram and Gmail at Book Club of Uno. Book Club of One is recorded and distributed by Anchor.fm. And remember, no one should be shamed for reading.